I just want to share his description of this. Uh, so Greg Bluestein says that Sasha Baron Cohen, Sasha Baron Cohen gets Jason Spencer to yell racial epithets, make offensive marks about Chinese tourists and pull down his pants and shimmy his naked buttocks towards. (laughs) (laughs) The real challenge is, can I read this without laughing? (laughs) So Spencer makes offensive remarks about Chinese tourists and pulls down his pants and shimmies. Uh, okay, hold on. So Sasha Baron Cohen gets Representative Jason Spencer to yell racial epithets, make offensive marks about Chinese tourists, and pull down his pants and shimmy. <laughs> Kyle, it's not that hard. I can't. I can't just, just send it to me. I will read it. Uh, one more time, and then I'll send it to you. Sasha Baron Cohen. Kyle, just send it to me. All right, I'm going to send it to you. Hello and welcome to Peach Potty, Georgia Politics Podcast. I'm Kyle Hayes and I'm your host and I'm joined again this week as always by my good friend Luke Boggs. Luke, how's it going? Oh, I'm doing much better than some people in our beloved state of Georgia. Yeah, Jason Spencer having a much worse day than you, uh, which we'll talk about. And then we are also joined by one of our favorite friends of the pod, former communications director for the Hunter Hill for Governor campaign, Cody Hall. Cody, thanks for coming back on. Absolutely. Happy to be with you. Um, so on this week's show, we are going to talk about the elections that are taking place today. If you are listening to us on Tuesday, July 24th, there are uh, runoff elections for the uh, Republican side on the governor's race, on the lieutenant governor's race, on the secretary of state's race. And for the Democrats, there's notable elections uh, in uh, runoff elections in the primary, in the 6th Congressional District, in the 7th Congressional District, and a runoff um, in the state school superintendent's race, along with some runoffs uh, that are taking place in legislative races on the House side. Um, So for our episode today, we're just going to dig into these races, give you a preview of what these outcomes might be, and take a peek forward to the general election. Um, So let's start with the governor's race. This race really has uh, seemed like it has gone on forever at this point. But this is a contest between Lieutenant Governor Casey Cagle and current Secretary of State Brian Kemp. They are the two that made it out of the the first round of this race, the primary that was in May. Um, And this race really uh, has... Uh, come to a head in its final weeks with President Trump's surprise endorsement of Brian Kemp. Um, And then Brian Kemp was able to campaign with Vice President Pence in Macon on Saturday. So Cody, let's just uh, start with you and in this uh, endorsement from President Trump and campaign appearance from Vice President Pence. What was your reaction to that endorsement? And do you think that this endorsement locks up this race for Kemp? I do. Um, in short, um, I was very surprised at the endorsement. You know, there's a, a whole host of Georgia characters that are close to this White House. Um, there's Billy Kirkland that works, um, I think, in the vice president's office now. Obviously, Nick Ayers, the vice president's chief of staff. Um, there's a number of other ones. Um, Paul Beneke is a former Purdue guy who um, also helped with the David Purdue race, um, who is now head of the RGA. So there's a whole host of 
Georgia Republicans that are close to this president, um, or at least to the White House. And we haven't really narrowed it down to exactly, or it hasn't been publicized exactly who was the uh, straw that broke the camel's back or who brought it to the, to the president's attention. My bet would be on on Sonny Perdue, um, just because I think he has the most personal contact other than David Perdue um, out of that entire network. Um, and I think there's been some some tension in between the former Purdue folks and the and the current deal folks is, that were that was probably brought to the foreground or kind of broke open old wounds with the endorsement of uh, of Cagle. So I think that's probably where I would put it. I don't have any inside knowledge on that. That's just my um, read on the situation. But um, really, anywhere from Nick Ayers to Sonny Purdue to David Purdue to um, Ralph Reed, I've heard his name mentioned. Um, there's a whole host of folks. I think it does put away the race, though, um, just because there is no one person that can motivate a Republican runoff electorate in Georgia like the president can. Um, he's incredibly popular, not only with the Republican. <clears throat> I think the national polling has him in the high 80s. The, the latest one was by the Wall Street Journal and NBC News had him at. Um, I think in Georgia, he's probably high 70s, low 80s. But in a runoff electorate, I would assume that would probably go closer to 90 or low 90s um, in the percent approval of the president. Um, so his endorsement, well, I know the Cagle camp has been saying that there's been two gold star endorsements with Governor Deal being one of those and President Trump being the other one. Um, I think in this race, especially since they could cut an ad with the president's endorsement, Vice President Pence came down. This was a pretty enthusiastic endorsement of Brian Kemp, whereas the deal endorsement of Cagle, uh, he only answered a couple of questions in the press conference. He did none of the media afterwards with the TV cameras with Cagle after his endorsement, and he hasn't went out on the campaign trail for him at all. Um, so they've just been able to slap it on a mail piece. And I think one of their TV ads also has it. Um, but I think in this case, the president's endorsement is overwhelmingly more important um, than Governor Deal's. Luke, what did you think of this endorsement? And, and does this, if Brian Kemp ultimately triumphs in this contest, uh, maybe in part because of this endorsement, is that um, encouraging or discouraging to Democrats and, and Stacey Abrams, who's going to compete against the winner in the fall? I think it's encouraging to Democrats in the fall uh, to have this endorsement on the primary winner uh, for the Republicans because Donald Trump was, you know, not as popular as Mitt Romney or McCain in Georgia. There's a lot more crossover than this state's seeing, and Georgia's typically a pretty inelastic state when it comes to voters. Most of the time, your Republican voters stay with the Republicans and Democrats stay with the Democrats. So if uh, Kemp wants to bear hug Donald Trump, uh, I welcome him doing it because I think it will open the door to us getting some crossover voters that otherwise would have uh, stayed with the party they usually vote with. Yeah, I, I too. I think this endorsement is, uh, I think it pretty much seals it. I've kind of been operating on the assumption that Brian Kemp was going to come out on top in this contest for the last couple of weeks because Casey Cagle really had just about the worst confluence of events that could happen to a front runner as this race has come down the stretch. The, you know, when we first started talking about the secret recording that came out, the question on, on our minds was, is this a story that lasts for a few days or is this something that haunts him through the entire election cycle? And it seems like with sort of the drip, drip, drip release, um, some of which has come from 
uh, out of the media, some of which has come directly from the Kemp campaign, and uh, some of which has actually come from former um, former staff on the Hunter Hill campaign. All of these uh, snippets of tape have sort of added to this underlying feeling about Casey Cagle among Republican primary voters, and then the endorsement from Trump seems to be kind of just the final... Um, layer of the cake in terms of getting a lot of attention on Brian Kemp, having probably one of the biggest events in this runoff when Vice President Pence was in Macon over the weekend to campaign for Kemp. Um, and it, you know, it, it does set up this really interesting contest where if Kemp is the one that comes out on top, you may have sort of a purely base motivating Republican candidate in Brian Kemp and a purely base-motivating Democratic candidate in Stacey Abrams. And um, it's going to be an interesting fight to see where where the moderates go on that. Um, but, Cody, what did, what did you think about, you know, sort of all, all of these events as they've kind of come to at the end, the, the tape, the endorsement? Um, there, Casey Cagle has an interesting sort of open letter op-ed today, uh, where he's trying to make his final pitch to voters. Um, is this the, is the way that this contest was fought between Cagle and Kemp? Do you feel like that gives Republicans a strong hand as they move past this runoff and look towards November? You know, it, it's been an incredible runoff. I, I think it'll go down in history books as one of the stranger, um, political contests in Georgia history, just because of the multitude of things that have um, shaken up this race and completely changed the entire makeup of the race. Um, you know, obviously the recording <clears throat> has been incredibly damaging to the Kegel campaign. Um, I think they made a mistake in, in not coming out at the immediate onset saying this was a private conversation that was recorded. Um, and I said things I did not mean, and it was a mistake. And that be their response and stick to it. Because then they then had to keep changing their answer based on the new revelations that came out because they didn't have ownership of the tape. Um, Lieutenant Governor Cagle knew how long the tape was because he knew how long he had been sitting down with Clay Tippins, and he knew um, there were other things in that recording that could be released. Um, and I think their initial response just forced them to have a different response with each new release. And it kept the story alive. Um, and I think their changing answer put confusion in the minds of the voter where Cagle really was on this issue. You know, was he sorry that he said it? Was he sorry that um, he meant it? Or he, you never got a real answer um, from the lieutenant governor on on the tape. He kept, you know, trying to muddy the water. Um, and it was a strange reaction, in my opinion. Um, and I think it, it, it ultimately probably led to the deal endorsement being so tepid and probably also led to the president's involvement in this race. Um, so it's been interesting. You know, I think the rally um, with, with Vice President Pence um, was a huge thing for the Kemp campaign. You know, in full disclosure, I'm supporting Brian Kemp in the runoff. Um, I, I publicly said that. Um, and a lot of the former Hill folks and voters um, are as well. But I think um, it was I was surprised, but I shouldn't have been that they had the event in Macon. Um, I think that's yet another data point that shows that the Kemp campaign is not taking rural Georgia um, for granted. Um, and I think it's just going to show up again in the polls, you know, or in the results tomorrow. Um, they have put an overwhelming focus on rural Georgia 
And I think it's going to pay off because I think it did in the primary as well. So I think the last thing I'll address is this op-ed that um, the Kegel campaign released today. I haven't seen it in any media outlets. It's just been on their email and on their social media platforms. And I think it's one of the more puzzling actions taken by the Kegel campaign. Um, I don't really get the point. Um, because if they couldn't get it um, in a paper or in any media outlet, the only people that will see it are the people that are signed up to their emails or see it on social media. So they're not going to be winning a whole lot of votes by it. Um, it kind of goes after the president and kind of sets Kegel up as kind of a, I told you so, I didn't need the president to get here if he did win. Um, it strikes me as something, and I have absolutely no inside knowledge of this, the op-ed strikes me as something that the candidate came to the campaign staff and said, I'm going to write this, um, and I want you all to put it out there. Um, because Kay, you know, Kegel's team is smart enough and, and able enough to be able to put this where they want it in terms of media, and it's just on their email. It's a weird message. Um, Kegel implores the voters to ignore all of the scars that he has or all of the downfalls that he has and vote for supposedly a conservative record. But then he wants everyone to pay attention to all of the things that he says are negative about the Brian Kemp campaign. And he also brings in this Jason Spencer thing um, into the op-ed that you'll see um, or that we'll talk about a, a little bit later. It's a weird appeal, and I don't see the point in it other than a candidate um, who is frustrated, who is angry, and who wants to blame a lot of people around him um, but isn't willing to take ownership for himself, um, that he said the words on the tape. Um, he is probably the cause of him losing the runoff. It's not his team. It's not, um, you know, it's not Brian Kemp. It's himself speaking to Clay Tippins in a way that was awful, probably bordering on corrupt. And he, in my opinion, in that op-ed shows absolutely no self-reflection and, and able to own up to his mistakes other than saying, I'm not perfect. Well, that doesn't take any um, bout of courage. Um, so. It was very strange to me, and I don't know what they gained by it. I, I have a question. I have a question, real quick, uh, mo mostly for Cody, since Kyle and I have kind of talked about this before. But if you have any new thoughts, Kyle, I'd love to hear them. I strongly feel that Casey Cagle lost this race a long time ago, and I think he lost it before the runoff uh, because I really think the Cagle campaign had the wrong strategy. So I would love to hear if you agree with that, Cody, and then what do you think they should have done? And let's kind of like take the like tape and being stupid on audio like off the table. Like what would have been a better strategy? Because like I don't feel like the, the primary, the initial primary result was a strong one for the Cagle campaign, considering like the fundamental strength he should have had being the lieutenant governor for like ever. So like what, what are your thoughts on that? I think um, you're exactly right that with... I think it was over $7 million or almost $7 million compared to, I think, um, two and a half or no, probably over three for Kemp, over three for Hill um, and over three for Tippins. Um, and Casey had far more outside money, probably over a million um, put in in the primary from outside groups. So he had the money advantage. He had the name ID advantage. He had the statewide network advantage. I mean, he's been lieutenant governor for 12 years and state senator. Um, for um, 12 years before that. <clears throat> so there's no excuse, in my opinion, why um, everyone's perception going in was that if he's above 40 percent in the primary, he's doing well. And if he's below 40 percent, um, he's in trouble. And he, he came in at 39. So I think one of the things, one of the grave errors they made, I think 
the Kegel campaign ran an almost perfect campaign up until January. And they, I think their ad campaign was misplaced. Again, they wanted to talk about career academies that no one cares about. They wanted to talk about tech and jobs, and that's a general election message. And I don't know who was driving that ball. And, you know, it's easy for me to sit here and, and, and you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. Um, and Monday morning quarterback this thing. I'm sure a lot of people can tell me things that the Hill campaign should have done differently. But I think their media campaign um, didn't hit the mark. Um, I They didn't do a single campaign uh, ad that was 30 seconds long that focused on the NRA endorsement. And I think they should have. And, you know, these, you know, they seem to ignore the fact that Republican primary voters don't care about the issues that they wanted, that the cable campaign wanted to talk about. And yes, you had more money, but you can't, in my opinion, um, shift the priorities of an electorate in one primary cycle. I mean, I think that's what they were kind of trying to do. They were trying to fit a round peg in a square hole. Um, so it was strange to me. I think what they should have done is not attack the other candidates right before the primary. I think that was ill-advised and I think took them up off message. Um, and I think they also should have pushed very hard to get the deal endorsement earlier. Um, they may have done that. Um, it would have been very beneficial for them to have it earlier and have a stronger endorsement out of the governor. Um, and I think they should have focused solely on Stacey Abrams. When you have that much money, when you have that much more name ID than everyone else, stay positive, stay focused on the issues. Don't come after Hunter Hill in, a, in, in both of the primary televised debates right before the primary. Go after Stacey Abrams. Draw the, if you don't, I think the Cagle campaign understood or at least had a hunch that they could not win in a choice where you give Cagle and another Republican because Cagle has all these negatives, especially with the recording. You – I think the campaign should have said, if they don't like that choice, let's give them a different choice between Casey and Abrams. They're just now starting to make that argument, and I think that it's a day late and a dollar short, and they should have started making it in the primary. That's my opinion. Um, it's easy for me to Monday morning quarterback. I wasn't in the room, um, but that's just my my two cents. Yeah, and the reason I asked this, and you probably saw this coming since we talked about this in Slack a little bit. I, I feel I, I kind of agree like halfway that like that's half of my criticism of the Kegel campaign. But my, my other criticism is that like it just felt very inauthentic to me because while the ads that you talked about and the messages that you talked about, I am aware that Kegel likes talking about those things. That's never what actually like broke through to my social media. Like what I always saw with Kegel was him being out of character and being really, really far to the right on some issues like the the delta tax credit and i saw his immigration ad and you know the times where he like tries to be very vocal in his support for president trump like those are the times that kegel's message broke through for me and every time i saw one of those i'm just like this does not feel like casey kegel uh and this doesn't feel like the you know lieutenant governor that I have seen and been frustrated with. It feels like a caricature of what he thought the Republican primary wanted. And I mean, do do you completely do you continue to completely outrule the possibility that the inauthenticity that he displayed was part of the reason why he didn't do better with voters? No, I I think that his Kegel's um, inability to seem authentic has continuously plagued him, um, and 
may be one of the deciding factors in this campaign. I, I completely agree. I don't know. Um, you know, I can get very insidery and very nitpicky on what I didn't like about his ads. You know, the immigration ad. I, I don't think, you know, walking in a, a dark blue suit with a skinny tie in between two prison fences is exactly what people think of when they think of tough on illegal immigration. But that's really nitpicky and 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 very focused. I think generally his media campaign just didn't ring true to voters. I think you can list a laundry list of ways it did not. But I think the strongest one was that, you know, he had the NRA endorsement and he didn't do a 30 second ad with him with a gun shooting something. Um, why not? I don't know if it was because they felt above that kind of approach. Um, but, you know, there's a reason why Brian Kemp is ahead in the polls and probably going to win tomorrow. Um, and, you know, if you want to win, you got to do what you think it takes to get there. You know, obviously not compromising your morals and your beliefs and that kind of stuff. But um, I don't know. It, it's I think his um, lack of authenticity is a big problem. Um, and I think it's going to show up tomorrow in the results. Well, and I think the maybe the most inauthentic move might have been this open letter that we were talking about earlier that he put out today, um, because he he flips from, you know, earlier in this race, he said that Donald Trump deserved a Nobel Peace Prize for his performance in North Korea, which now feels uh, you know, silly in retrospect, given that very little progress has been made. And then sort of as this last stitch effort, when he's lost the support, the potential support, potential endorsement of President Trump, he tries to make this argument in this letter that he's going to be he keeps saying in these last few days that he's going to be a bulldog for Georgia, not a lapdog for Washington. And he's making this point that Brian Kemp is basically going to owe his success in this race to the White House and to President Trump. And so that if the president is doing things and and, and Cagle offers up an example in this letter of um, the current policies coming out of the administration on trade and how they might hurt auto manufacturing jobs in Georgia and in other states across the South. Um, and so he's basically saying in this last moment that Casey Cagle would be the candidate to stand up to Trump when Trump is doing bad things to Georgia and is going to support him when Trump is doing good things to Georgia. Um, and, and he is making the case in this letter that Brian Kemp is not that candidate, that Brian Kemp is going to have to stand there and hold a press conference applauding President Trump uh, if Trump's policies lead, for instance, to auto manufacturing jobs leading the state. Now, the thing that feels the most inauthentic about that is that we already know that the Republicans have a sort of a unity rally planned for after this, after this runoff completes on Tuesday. And Barring some barring something that would really surprise me, Casey Cagle is going to turn around and he's going to endorse Brian Kemp in this race. There is no way that he will endorse Stacey Abrams in this race. Uh, you know, the idea is just laughable. But the standard that he sets, the standard that he would be a governor who would stand up to Trump when he's doing bad things to Georgia and stand by him when he's doing good things is a standard more likely to be fulfilled by Stacey Abrams than at least in Brian, in Casey Cagle's opinion, Brian Kemp, if he's saying that Brian Kemp is going to be this lapdog for Washington. And so, you know, he went from saying Cagle should have a Nobel to saying he'll stand up to Trump. And then in a week, he's going to endorse Kemp, despite what he said today. And so I don't know, I just I just I feel like I see through everything he's doing. And I'm I'm somewhat of a partisan, I try not to be but like, 
I don't, it just seems so obvious to me that he's just casting about for whatever words he thinks will win this, will allow him to win this election. And I think that one of the interesting things, more, I guess the ironic thing, and I'm going to kind of be a little snarky here, the guy who on tape says that he crushed a certain public policy initiative for years, but then switched his position to keep political donations from going to a rival, says that his opponent, in fact, is the one who is going to be beholden to someone else for their victory. Um, I That just rings of falsehood and just dishonesty. Um, I, it, it's just very ironic to me. And, and I think you're right, Kyle, that it's going to be um, interesting um, for this unity rally, which I think is important. But um, Cagle with this op-ed has made it even harder for him with a straight face to stand up in front of people in a couple of days and say, Brian Kipp's the guy I think that should be governor, um, which is what he should do um, and what he would expect a Brian to do. If Kegel were to win tomorrow, he would expect Brian um, to endorse him at the unity rally. Um, so it's it certainly makes it harder, I think, for him to do it with a straight face. I mean, there is the the second, you know, there's the third option between endorsing Kemp and endorsing Abrams. And it's like taking your ball and going home. I would I would not be surprised as the you know former presumed next governor of Georgia if Kegel just being a human being might do that, at least for a while. I don't know. I think that um, the the planning of a unity rally a week or so out from the runoff election almost boxes Cagle into having to say he endorses Kemp unless he I just mean, decides not it's, to it's show a lot, up. It's a lot easier to plan a unity rally when you think it's going to be the other guy endorsing you. Yeah, but I think the message is you better endorse or you're going to have some problems with the party to whoever the loser is. I don't believe the state party would have put this on without an agreement with both candidates. They would be there regardless of the result. I mean, everyone in 2016 signed an agreement that they would endorse the Republican nominee uh, and took Ted Cruz a while, but he eventually did it. So, I mean, it's just, I I guess I'm skeptical. I don't know. I'm not skeptical at all. (laughs) And I, I did want to say one thing, Kyle, in that op-ed that, um, Cagle makes an un, unsubstantiated claim. Um, there was a reporter um, from ProPublica that said in 2016 they were at a meeting of secretaries of state um, with donors um, and they were watching the final presidential debate or one of the presidential debates. And the reporter claims that Kemp laughed at one point and said that Trump should go over and grope Hillary Clinton. Now, my personal opinion, um, I've known Brian Kemp for a number of years now and I'd could not imagine him saying anything like that, um, but the reporter did not include that in their, you know, in their story about the 2016 debate at that time. And I am pretty darn sure that that reporter would have included that in whatever story they wrote. And if they didn't include it, um, and there was an off-the-record agreement, and someone said that, I don't think it was Kemp. Um, the reporter is obviously not um, holding himself to the highest ethical standard, so. For Cagle, again, to make that unsubstantiated, no way to tell if it's true claim um, in an op-ed that he's sending out to all of his reporters is, um, I think it's irresponsible. 
Yeah, this was really interesting. And this so so Kemp has not been universally the recipient of only good headlines in this in this stretch towards the end. This was something that came out and was reported in it in the AJC. And the thing that I noticed about it was uh, Kemp spokesman Ryan Mahoney called these allegations. Um, I think he called them ridiculous and said that it wasn't surprising that somebody would be making wild allegations this close to a race. Um, and and on Twitter, the Kemp campaign wrote uh, basically hit Kegel for parroting a left wing reporter um, in promoting this allegation. The one thing that I did not see anywhere, um, and so correct me if I'm wrong, if this came out later, I never saw Kemp or his spokesman say. Brian Kemp did not say those words. And I read that as uh, basically a loophole big enough for Kemp to drive his truck through that if he was ever pressed on some sort of confirmation of this quote, um, that he can he can at least say that he never lied saying he did not say that. Um, But I do think that this is something that could fit into a narrative that could be damaging to Brian Kemp in the fall. Um, because this lines up with donations that the Kemp campaign has received um, when they had a fundraiser hosted by the CEO of a massage clinic whose massage clinic is under investigation by a branch of the Secretary of State's office for pending sexual assault claims against patients who, who went to these massage clinics. Um, and, you know, Stacey Abrams is a woman women are an important voting block for the Democratic Party. And a lot of the messaging, particularly this year and in this environment created by Trump, is going to be targeted at women voters. And so when you combine this anecdote with these fundraisers and Brian Kemp's position on abortion, which he is currently supporting a a six-week abortion ban, I think that that creates a really a hard message for Stacey Abrams to throw at Brian Kemp and and puts him on the defensive um, if he ultimately is the one that's going to going to face her in the fall. I wouldn't be so sure. Republicans in Georgia have already proven that they're fine fine with voting for a racist sexist. So what's what's voting for another one? Well, I would I would obviously strongly disagree that Brian Kemp is any of those things, but um, I think it's going to be an issue that they're going to have to deal with. You know, I mean, it's it, it's campaign politics and they're going to have to answer those charges. And I think they've made the point that um, the secretary of state cannot revoke the license. The board has to, and the board is appointed by the governor. Um, but I mean, that's just, a, know, it's such a, the, it's such a easy thing to return the donations, even if that's true. Cause I mean, I understand government has bureaucracy and blah, 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 but like, why not just return the donations then? I, I, I think that's a valid point. And I think that um, there could have been the choice not to do one of the fundraisers. Um, but again, it's a it's an issue they're going to have to contend with in the fall. Um, but I think that there's going to be bigger issues that come into play, um, at least until the final two weeks. Then this stuff will come back up. So, yeah, I, the one thing I think Kemp might have been better off to to learn the lesson, Cody, that you noted that the cable campaign should have learned, and and maybe just saying as soon as this came out, look, I held a fundraiser with this guy. Um, you know, I either didn't know or it was a mistake to hold this fundraiser. And so I'm returning those donations and, and this was a mistake and, and we'll move on. He could also make that claim about this quote about uh, Hillary Clinton. If, if that gets confirmed for him to say, you know, I said this, I really shouldn't have said it. It was wrong. And and I apologize and I move on. 
Um, and so I don't, you know, he, he's, uh, he's been able to hit Kegel over Kegel's mistakes and not just being willing to say I was wrong and I'm sorry. And, uh, if, if, uh, Kemp has a hard time in the fall, he may have wished he learned, uh, Kegel's lesson that he, he beat up Kegel on so effectively. So let's sort of preview a little bit this race as maybe Kemp moves out of it. We, we've kind of been doing that most of this already do, but do we think, you know, Cody, do you think that if the Republican runoff voters choose Brian Kemp, uh, on at the election on Tuesday, that they've made the right choice for who is the best candidate to beat Stacey Abrams? I do. Um, for a number of reasons, you know, I've, I've always not put much stock in previous to this election. I've not put much stock in the argument that you have to nominate a conservative or conservatives won't turn out because historically Republicans have been very good about rallying around the flag and, and, and supporting their nominee in the fall, regardless of one or two policy differences they may have with them. I think Cagle is a unique, um, candidate and in a unique time period for a unique electorate. By that, I mean, I think Cagle has severe enough flaws that the current Republican electorate, um, who is kind of sick of the career politician that'll say anything to get elected, you know, backroom deals, that kind of, um, thing, compare that all with, you know, the, the Abrams campaign and how they're going to be able to use those attacks against Cagle. I think he would have been the weaker candidate, um, I think Kemp is going to act, you know, energize Republicans pretty much across the spectrum. I think you're going to be seeing a lot more of Kemp's family in the fall um, in television advertisements. I think you're going to be hearing him talk a lot more about his small business record, creating jobs, and his actually very good tenure Secretary of State. I know, I know, um, both of you may disagree with me on that point, but there are a number of reforms that he's been able to enact that have made that office easier for folks to deal with and easier to create jobs for Georgia businesses. So I think you're going to be hearing more of that. Um, and I think that you're going to see Kemp really kind of hitch himself to deal with record, which is very good on economic development and the economy. Um, and I think he's going to be a stronger candidate in the fall. I mean, don't, don't you think though that like putting aside how, you know, the flaws of Brian Kemp in the Secretary of State's office because we've we've talked about that before. I mean, don't you think it's just going to open up the door to create a much stronger contrast between Brian Kemp's Georgia and Stacey Abrams's Georgia? And in some ways, isn't Brian Kemp's going to be a pretty strong departure from what we're currently doing? Whereas like Cagle would have kept Georgia basically the same. The one, See, can I yeah. piggyback off that real quick? Yeah. The 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 one place where I think this matters in a substantive way in terms of this really clear contrast is on the issue of uh, rural health care and Medicaid expansion. Policy wasn't a big part of this runoff as it came to a close, but there is a pretty clear divide between Casey Cagle, who's been talking about a waiver for Medicaid, but it is really just kind of soft support for some form of Medicaid expansion. And Brian Kemp, who's been very clear that he opposes Medicaid expansion, he has not talked about Medicaid waivers in any way. Um, and so, you know, one one battleground where this might be fought, and this contrast is really clear, is Stacey Abrams, who's had full-throated endorsement of Medicaid expansion for, uh, you know, basically since the option was placed before states. Um, and you know, there wasn't much discussion of rural Georgia, I think, towards the end, with the exception of the rally with Pence being held in uh, somewhat rural Georgia. Um, but, you know, that that clear contrast may come out not just in personality or in attacks, but in, in policy, too. I I think that's one slight difference that you would see. I think Cagle would 
I think Jim Galloway with AJC had made this point that if Kegel were the nominee, you would hear more talk of waivers. Um, with Kemp as the Republican nominee, you're not going to hear any of that. And I think that is a, a departure from Kemp Kegel. I don't know that that's a departure from Deal because I think, you know, there's been a um, strange dynamic that, you know, they kind of stuck their foot out there that maybe they're open to it right before the 2016 election. Trump was elected. And they stepped back from that. I don't really know what their opinion is at this point, um, but I think I, I, I would agree in that with Kemp, that door is going to be completely shut. But I don't think it's one of the reasons why I was so surprised that Governor Deal endorsed, because I don't think Kemp is offering concrete areas where he would be a significant or even slight departure from Deal. Um, he has only kind of used the uh, House rural development um, plan as kind of a a blueprint for what he would do for rural Georgia, which deal is supportive of. Um, other than that, I don't see a whole lot of, I mean, he's, Kemp is actually championing on the SSOs, um, reforming the QB formula, some of the school choice stuff deal wanted to do with the education reform commission. Um, he's, I guess the only real thing I can think of is the spending cap idea Kemp wants to do. Um, other than that, I don't see a real departure. So that's why I was surprised at the endorsement. So I'm not sure that there's going to be a big departure there from Kemp and Deal. Um, I think it's just a change in rhetoric with a going out of office governor after seven and a half years and a guy who's running to be governor in a campaign. I think the change of rhetoric, though, is uh, I mean, I think it will be significant just because in the rhetoric that Kemp does put out and the. Um, places where they do diverge on policy are the places that have gotten like states like Kentucky and North Carolina in trouble. So I feel like Cagle would have a much easier time navigating those issues, whereas Kemp's basically very, you know, happily skipping along towards those potential potholes. And the other thing I'd add is, I would, my hunch, without really a lot of knowledge on this, my hunch is that Casey Cagle would be a little bit better at resisting some of the um, priorities of social conservatives that when they've been passed in other states like Indiana and North Carolina have created a lot of bad press for those states. And the argument from the establishment Republicans and sort of the Nathan Deal wing of the party has been that all of that bad press makes states look unwelcoming unwelcoming to certain populations of people and that in turn makes them look unwelcoming to business um brian kemp i don't know that he's been you know there i think they both have basically the same position on religious freedom uh legislation that they would like to see a federal version of the religious freedom restoration act passed in georgia as of now that doesn't actually create the uh, opportunity to discriminate that some of its proponents would uh, like to see. Um, but, but I'm, I'm less confident in Brian Kemp's ability to resist those impulses. Um, if he opposes them, he, he may not oppose them. He may want to see some of these priorities of social conservatives be enacted. Um, any other closing thoughts on the, the, Governor runoff. I was just going to cover a little bit on the tape that, you know, I, I think one of the reasons why you haven't seen any more on the tape is that um, it seems that the the sole owner of said tape was Clay Tippins. And um, I think through what seems to be a very lengthy conversation, there were obviously some parts of the recording that 
that the Mr. Tiffins did not want to become public, and and folks can draw their own conclusions about what that may mean about his intentions. But I think that's one of the main reasons you haven't seen more of the tape or more damaging aspects of the tape come out. Uh, my question for uh, mostly Cody was, is that Kemp has raised significantly less money than Cagle has, which you mentioned earlier. Do you think that's going to hurt him in the the general election? Because most of, well, the reason I asked too is because a lot of times the strategy in Georgia is to like hold and then blitz on TV for the last couple months, and Kemp's really going to have a lot less to work with going into the general. Yeah, so I, I think um, there's a couple points that number one on the money thing, I think Kemp's going to be fine. Um, I <laughs> I don't think this is going to happen, but you know hypothetically having a staffer at the door of his or victory party tomorrow night, if he is victorious, um, checking in everyone that had maxed out to Casey Cagle's campaign and saw where the tea leaves were going. Um, I think there's going to be a, an enormous, um, I, I, I won't say a full come to, to Jesus meeting, um, but there's going to be a lot of folks that are going to have to realize this guy's going to be the next governor. Um, we bet wrong. We were not willing to hedge our bets and we got our arms twisted into writing you know, one max check, two max checks, um, third from a business max check um, to, to the Kegel campaign, and they've lost. And now we've got to pay the piper. So I think there's going to be plenty of money, um, both in the campaign and outside the campaign. I think the RGA is going to have enough money to um, help any campaign here that needs it. But I also say that Kemp is going to be inheriting a, a very strong state party organization. Um, we have a real professional in our state party chairman, John Watson. Um, our executive director, Carmen Bergman, um, they're professionals. Um, they are going to work seamlessly with the RNC staff, Josh Finlay here. Um, I think you're going to have a great, robust ground operation with the RGA, the RNC, and the state party that is going to really, I think, match what Abrams is going to have on, have going on in terms of voter contact. All right. Well, let's move on to uh, some of the other runoffs on the Republican side that are going on. There, there's two big ones worth talking about, um, and that is the race between David Schaefer and Jeff Duncan for lieutenant governor. Um, in this race, David Schaefer nearly avoided the runoff in May. He got just shy of the 50% plus one that he would have needed. Um, but since then, this race, at least in the polling, seems to have kind of uh, gotten a little bit closer. Uh, David Schaefer did get the endorsement from Governor Nathan Deal, um, but the polls show uh, this to be a much closer race with Schaefer's polling numbers falling down to about 34%, Jeff Duncan polling at about 31%, and about a third of voters left undecided in a poll that I believe was from last week. Um, there hasn't been a ton of polling on this, but do do you guys think uh, from just from paying attention to this race that this has gotten much closer um, or has Schaefer pretty much still been in control? So I've um, actually been talking with a couple of folks. Um, I've heard that there has been independent unbiased polling. So it hasn't been done by one of the campaigns that has shown Duncan with a small lead. Um, that's the first time I've heard that data point. Um, so you can take that with a grain of salt, but I think, um, that race could potentially be closer than people are thinking. What I was unaware of the AJC, I think had in it today in the jolt or yesterday that, um, that Duncan, there's an outside group supporting Jeff Duncan, um, that has actually spent $1.5 million, um, on TV attacking Schaefer. 
Um, and I think they're actually pretty effective ads just because they can say, you know, shameful Schaefer or, or shady Schaefer, however you want to say it. And it's kind of that alliteration. Um, and I think that, um, the negative ads that Schaefer has answered with has not been, or they have not been as effective. I will say one quick thing, and I'll let Luke talk about this a little bit. One of the things I think that the Schaefer campaign did incorrectly was um, there's only one positive ad that Schaefer has running right now, and it's where Schaefer's again face to camera speaking, and he actually says his opponent's name, which in a race where you had the money edge three to one, were able to outspend your opponent on TV statewide by a large margin, by three to one margin. Um, I think it's incredibly foolish to say your opponent's name in your own advertisement um, because odds are that, you know, the voter that's hearing you has not heard of the opponent that you're outspending three to one. And um, if they don't like you for some reason, they can easily Google the other guy without much thought. Um, so that's kind of a small nitpicky thing that I think was just a blunder um, by the Schaefer campaign. Um, and I think that Duncan, while I've kind of had issues with his overall campaign strategy of being um, negative from the very start against Schaefer, I think it could be closer um, than what people think. And um, if, you know, the things I've heard are correct, he could eke it out. Yeah, I have to agree with you. I mean, <laughs> you just don't say your opponent's name. Unless you're, like, running for president, just don't do it. Because, like, everyone's going to know the presidential, you know, nominees. But, yeah, especially, I mean, especially under this specific circumstance, I mean, it's a pretty bad, pretty bad, bad strategy to do that just because people barely know who's running for lieutenant governor. <laughs> so if you actually have an opportunity to get an uh, audience to listen to you and like make it hit home that you're running for lieutenant governor, you wouldn't want to make anyone, you know, inform them of anybody else. Right. Plus we all know that the true opponent at any level of government for the Republicans is Nancy Pelosi. That's right. Be, uh, <laughs> running for County commission and you're, you have the specter of Nancy Pelosi <laughs> over your head. That's funny. Um, That's me on July 24th, and I will keep that gavel out of her hands. <laughs> um, so this race, I don't I don't know if it fits exactly, but it has some interesting parallels to the governor's race. David Schaefer is, has been sort of a longtime politician in Atlanta. I think he's a little bit more associated with the Republican establishment than his opponent is. Jeff Duncan is a relatively younger guy, relatively newer politician, um, and seems to be trying to claim that outsider throne that uh, seems to be so valuable within Republican primaries. Do you guys think at all that, uh, Duncan's fate might be tied to that of Brian Kemp's or that because they sort of fit somewhat a similar mold that uh, he may be benefiting from Kemp's surge in the governor's race. I'll say that, um, and this is entirely anecdotal. Um, a lot of the same like party conservatives, the folks that have been in the party apparatus for a while, but you know, consider themselves conservative are backing Kemp and then Schaefer. Um, Cause Schaefer has a very long history in state politics. He was executive director of the state party. He was um, college Republican chair way back in the nineties. Um, he's been state senator for a while. Um, so he has a history that he's built up with these folks that, you know, he's kind of um, the folks that complain about the DC swamp were okay with supporting a guy who's been in there a while. Um, so he has relationships that he's been able to use to his advantage. Um, I would think it's going to come down. I think Duncan did well in some metropolitan areas across the state. So if um, 
you know, his TV ads, his mail operation, if it's targeted enough and he can drive up turnout where, you know, in the Columbus, Augusta, you know, he's from Forsyth County. If that turns out big for Cagle, um, that could help Duncan. Um, that's just where I see it coming from. You know, if, if North Georgia does well for Cagle, um, odds are that same North Georgia um, area would be um, more favorable to Duncan than Schaefer. But I think it's just going to come down to, you know, where those TV ads went, which the voters think were effective, which weren't. Um, and I think in that very small area, if they were able to see enough of the Duncan ads, um, I think that edge would go to Duncan. Um, Luke, is there a uh, candidate in the lieutenant governor's race that the Democrats would rather see against Sarah Riggs-Amico in the fall? It hasn't been really talked about that much. I mean, Democrats are still trying to get organized behind our candidates and focus on the best message for Democrats. My gut instinct is we probably have a little bit better time against Schaefer just because there's probably more baggage there, whereas... Duncan's a pretty newer guy from times I've seen him. He's pretty smart and sounds reasonable. Uh, so there's a lot less to work with. Whereas I feel like Sarah Zemeco would be able to uh, work with a lot of Schaefer's legislative baggage and other baggage a lot, a lot easier. Cause r- really, I mean, as far as far as anything to go against Duncan on, there's not, much there that I've heard beyond just the he is a Republican we would have policy disagreements whereas Schaefer there's a little bit more you could hit I'll say this about Jeff Duncan um, I've, I've known him for a couple of years now um, and in my personal opinion if he were to win this race um, the sky is kind of the limit for him in his future politically um, he's incredibly articulate he is very good on, on the stump um, I think that given some experience in office, I think he'd be a g- really good fundraiser. Um, I know he's ran into a couple of challenges um, in that area throughout this primary runoff, but um, there's incredible potential there, which is kind of one of the reasons why, why there's more than a few GOPers that are disappointed that he ran um, a pretty negative race. But the only thing that matters is the win at this point for him. Um, and if he is able to pull out the win, um, you're going to be seeing him for a very long time in Georgia politics. So what about this runoff for the Secretary of State's race? This is a contest between Brad Raffensperger and David Bell Isle. Uh, Raffensperger was a former member of the legislature. David Bell Isle uh, was formerly the mayor of Alpharetta in Metro Atlanta. Um, Is there anything about this race that is really important to Republican voters, because much of what I've seen has to do with one of the candidates, you know, clarifying a family history issue. And on policy, they both seem lined up behind the idea of strengthening the security around the voting system. So it doesn't seem that there's a lot of, um, a lot of daylight between these candidates in, in substantive ways, but is there any sort of internal Republican politicking going on in this race? I think so. Um, I had, there had been rumblings that, that Bell Isle was going to run for this for a while. Um, him and Buzz Brockway were the ones that I knew earliest on were going to look at this and run. Um, the reason why I supported Buzz Brockway in the primary and voted for him was because I felt that Buzz could potentially be secretary of state for 30 something years and never run for anything else. And actually, you know, um, enjoy the job and stay in the job and um, do a very good job. Um, I think Buzz was, you know, kind of the one tough nerd thing. He enjoyed being nerdy about the ins and outs of what goes on in the Secretary of State's office. 
I think Belle Isle um, got a little sideways in a couple of claims he was making on the campaign trail. I think at one point he was essentially claiming that a legal immigrant could vote, which just isn't the case. Um, and he had been called out on that. And like you pointed out, Kyle, there's been some back and forth about taxes and um, personal real estate deals and that kind of stuff um, that have went back and forth. Um, I've seen quite a few conservatives in the state house um, that are supporting Raffensperger. Um, and I think think I, I would be very surprised if Raffensperger loses this just because he has a lot more money. Um, he's dipped into his personal fortune that I think is upwards of $20 million um, to finance this race. I think he did it again. I've also heard that Belle Isle um, has not been able to put up any um, real ad buys in the final couple weeks of the campaign. So I would think that Raffensperger is going to be the favorite, which is probably good for the GOP so that he can dip back into those coffers um, in order to be able to put enough money up to beat John Barrow in the fall. Well, guys, I, I drove from uh, Camden County this week, and uh, both on the way there and the uh, way back to Athens, I saw only Raffensburger signs, so obviously he's going to win. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say that, you know, that's one of those things I'm always irritated about whenever I, I listen to you know, I listen to shows um, sometimes or, or read articles are like, oh, I saw Raffensperger signs everywhere. He must have so much support. Here's what happens, folks. The campaigns go out and pay a guy who's called a sign guy, and he goes out and he puts up all these signs. Um, it is not an overwhelming showing of support. It is just that they pay someone to go out and put out those signs in those yards. Um, it's just one of those weird things in Georgia politics that everyone knows it goes on, but they don't actually come out and say that they pay a guy to put them there. It's not like people are hunting down Brad Raffensperger beating on his door to get a four by four to put in their yard. Anything else on secretary of state? Not for me. Race. I'm good. Oh, just, well, actually I lied. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll have to see if another road will be paved with a, uh, Republican campaign defeated by John Barrow. But besides, besides that, you know, <laughs> well, let's move on to our, our last topic before we get to the, uh, very gruesome video from from Jason Spencer. Um, and and that is Democratic runoffs in the sixth and seventh congressional districts. Um, so in the sixth congressional district, this is the seat currently held by Republican Karen Handel. Both Kevin Abel and Lucy McBath are competing for the Democratic nomination in that seat. And then the other seat that still got an open uh, runoff is the seventh congressional district. That is a seat currently held by Republican Rob Woodall. And uh, competing for the Democratic nomination in that one, you have David Kim and Carolyn Bordeaux. Um, so all four of the Democrats in these two races, they have never held public office before. So they're all pretty much political newcomers. Um, the only one that seems to have some substantive experience within Georgia politics is Carolyn Bordeaux, who is the former director of the state Senate budget office. Um, she's currently a professor at Georgia state. Um, Luke, is there, what, what stands out about these races? Is there any concern among Democrats that they may pick the wrong Democrat to try to flip either the handle seat or the Woodall seat or, or is it just good to have a, a Democrat with a pulse taking on uh, those Republicans in November? I, I would have to say that is unfortunately our starting point that like we're all just happy that someone actually is on the ballot for us to decide, uh, you know, as a alternative to Republicans, because so many elections in Georgia, the, the norm is that they are unchallenged. And so I, I think really to, you know, back up beyond 
um, just this one race. It's it's a sign of the work that needs to get done by the Democratic Party in Georgia to actually build up a bench so that when candidates are running, they are able to run really good campaigns and we're able to tell the difference between these candidates because I preface this whole conversation with that point just because like a lot of people aren't talking about this race, which is pretty surprising to me if you consider how much excitement there was about John Ossoff. And that was a race where there were several people that ran before the hag experience and elected office. I'm, I'm kind of surprised that they didn't run again. Um, I think, you know, that that's something we should talk about uh, because as far as going to actually win in November, uh, it's the worst kept secret in Georgia among Democrats that we think the seventh is a lot stronger of an opportunity than the sixth. And so um, I was expecting to see a lot of energy and excitement around the uh, the sixth, but for, for whatever reason, the candidates haven't been able to capture the same level of excitement that John Ossoff did. Yeah, I think part of that is there isn't sort of this single spotlight with $30 million pouring into any of these Democratic campaigns right now. Um, and, and the other thing is this this race is not reflective of the, the broader debate going on in the Democratic Party right now between sort of its left flank represented by politicians like Bernie Sanders and um, the uh, newest uh, primary winner, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, um, who are bringing sort of the democratic socialist brand of politics into the democratic mainstream. Um, all four of these candidates, for the most part, took relatively establishment-friendly positions in the various debates that have been going on. Um, there, there's no real... Uh, ideological warrior for for Medicare for all and um, big uh, really foundational changes to our politics that are that are supported by democratic socialists. So I, I think that's reflective of the districts that these are in. These are still reaches for Democrats. Um, they're they're by no means guaranteed to flip even one of these seats, uh, even if there is a blue wave. Um, but. But yeah, this is not a uh, ideological slugfest that that we've seen in other Democratic primaries. I will say, um, out of the two races, Republicans I talk to are most concerned about Rob Woodall. Karen Handel's built up a great war chest of over a million dollars. She has a solid team. Um, she's from North Fulton. I mean, she's incredibly deep ties to that community. And I think she's going to run a good campaign. She's a disciplined campaigner. She's good on media. Um, she doesn't say more than she needs to say. Um, so I think she's going to be fine. Um, if the nominee is Kevin Abel, she'll win handily. Um, if Lucy McBath wins, there'll just be more outside money, um, that comes in, but I still think she wins. And I, also, I actually think that a Lucy McBath, Stacey Abrams, um, Sarah Riggs Amico kind of dynamic maybe helps build some energy for the state party on the democratic side, um, on, you know, over in the seventh, I think it's going to be interesting. Um, there is a very sizable Asian American population in Gwinnett County, um, that is growing. Um, and David Kim may be able to energize that community and get them out if he is the nominee. Um, the reason, the reason why so many Republicans are concerned about, um, the seventh is because what all does not have that much money on hand. I think he, um, led or had 
less than a quarter of a million on hand. Um, and the folks that I talk to are also concerned that he's not going to be willing to raise the amount of money he needs to. So we'll see if that picks up. Um, hopefully so. Um, but that's where Republicans I talk to are at right now. Yeah, I think the Democrats might make a mistake over in the seventh. David Kim, who is running against Carolyn Bordeaux in that race, has kind of taken some cheap shots at Carolyn Bordeaux. Um, he said that basically she is responsible for some of the cuts that have been made at the state level by the Republican-led legislature when Bordeaux was a nonpartisan official running the Senate Budget Office. That job is really around the idea of fulfilling the requests of the legislature. And, and you don't really, aside from being sort of a technical expert, you don't really have a say in sort of the policies that are pursued when you're sort of a nonpartisan technical expert. Um, David Kim also accused Carolyn Bordeaux of bringing Jim Crow-like tactics into this race, which seemed to be a completely unnecessary escalation uh, because uh, some translators that... Uh, I guess we're affiliated with the the Kim campaign, or or at least Kim is, um, you know, feels feels strongly about these translators. They were asked to move back from a polling location, but at least as far as I can tell, none of that was orchestrated by the Bordeaux campaign. Um, and and she seemed both <laughs> shocked and appalled that that Kim would be reaching for those attacks against her. So Bordeaux is currently outraising Woodall, um, and she has the support of Emily's List, a big Democratic donor. Um, and so you know, at least to me, Bordeaux seems to be the stronger candidate in that race. And you know, on the sixth, the thing that I think becomes important is. Lucy McBath's background, she has the really unfortunate life circumstance of losing her son to gun violence. Um, That is something that has propelled her into running for office. It's part of the reason that she's running for Congress is because she wants to see gun laws changed. Um, And so it it does at least put on the agenda in the state, whether good or bad for Democrats, a real conversation around changing gun laws and and gun reforms. And and that's something that regardless of the outcome of that race, having that issue elevated in um, congressional campaigns in Georgia, I think is a really good thing. Yeah, I think at the end of the day, I'm I'm hoping that whoever wins the runoffs get some help from the state party or the DNC or the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee because, you know, at least from my friends in these districts, these campaigns have really had a hard time breaking through and distinguishing themselves from their opponents and, like, focusing on issues that people care about. Because, I mean, the thing that has happened is so many people have wanted to run for office and that is a really great thing especially in Georgia since it's been you know there's a lot of like one party districts there's a lot of democratic districts where no republicans run and a lot of republican districts where no um democrats run and it's great that we're actually going to have some competition in the state but just having a name on a ballot isn't enough and i think a lot of people underestimate how hard it is to actually like run for congress and to you know go to the 18 town hall meetings in two weeks that people want you to go to and that you need to go to and the consequences of like canceling on those events a lot of, you know a lot of people just don't know how much that can hurt your credibility as a candidate and so i i'm hoping that um we as a, a party can really support whoever comes out of that primary because they're they're going to need it if they're going to be competitive at all. And, and I also just wanted to reiterate uh, what 
Cody had said, then just that I think Handel has a much better chance of holding on than Woodall. But I think the fundamentals of the district um, are still uh, leaning our way, but they're probably you know not there yet. So you know that just a Democratic name on the ballot is enough. They're going to have to run real campaigns if they want to win. I'll say this real quick. Um, I think Woodall pulls it off, um, but what I do think he runs a risk of doing is, you know, in in 2018, if you let it get close and you're not raising enough money, um, that puts you on the top of the target list in 2020. If the Dems either are close to a majority or need, you know, a few seats here or there, um, if he fights this seat and you know within five seven points, um, expect to see him back at the top of the list in 2020. Um, the so the other uh, Democratic runoff that's going on is the uh, Democratic runoff for state school superintendent. We'll dive more into the implications of this race once we have a, a Democrat versus a Republican. Um, but that is a race between Sid Chapman and Oda Thornton, uh, both both people who have been active in. Uh, teachers unions, teacher advocacy organizations uh, throughout their career. Um, did you guys want to say anything about that race? I'll just say on my end, you know, I, I think that, that Richard Woods um, is not the most exciting candidate. And I think he's probably going to have, he's the current state school superintendent, right? Correct. He's the incumbent. Um, he beat um, John Barge, who was the former state school superintendent who waged an unsuccessful campaign against Nathan Deal in 2014 with and had the claim to fame in launching his site for governor or his website for governor and misspelling governor. <laughs> um, Oops. So that is his claim to Did fame. Did he misspell and governor in his URL? Pride of Georgia schools. Or just, uh, just on the site. I don't think okay. so. I think it was just on the, I think it was just on oh, the site. Oh, that's hilarious. But another funny thing, um, and I think Bluestein tweeted this out when qualifying happened, is that on his paperwork, when he filed with the Secretary of State to run for that office, Barge um, put as his current occupation state school superintendent, which was being held by the guy he was running against. Anyways, very strange. Anyways, he beat him, and Woods will be our nominee and is the current incumbent. Um, I think Woods is going to have a race on his hands just because I think he's going to have trouble raising money because Sid Chapman comes from – I think I can't ever remember the acronym, but it's G A E or G E A or G A E A or whatever. It's the I think it's G A E, but right, the Georgia Association of Educators, I believe, yeah. um, and they're going to heavily back him because he was their president or chairman. Um, and I think it's a big moment for you know the state school superintendent is becoming less and less influential because more and more power has moved into the office of the governor, which at this point in time I'm okay with. Um, because Deal is a proponent of school choice. But I think it's, you know, for people that's, that care about school choice like I do, um, I think it's, it's you know, a potentially worrying scenario that you have a well-funded Democrat with national money um, who is anti-school choice and um, thinks that we could just throw more money at education and, and solve all of our problems with either Sid Chapman or Otha Thornton. Yes, it's Otha. Anyways. Yeah. I'll let Luke tell me why I'm wrong. Well, I mean, from your policy perspective, you're not wrong of why you would like Richard Woods over uh, Sid Chapman or Arthur Thornton. So I won't argue uh, with your personal policy preferences that you know, and, uh, I will argue why you shouldn't hold them at a different time. Uh, but, you know, for today, 
Uh, that I mean, that stands pretty correct. Um, you know, I Ova has gotten a lot of people excited, and so that's why he's still in this. And Sid Chapman has done a lot of good work and been around the party for a long time, and has been a real booster for other Democrat candidates on education issues. And so, it's a uh, you know pretty interesting that this race is. Uh, I, I was I was surprised that this race went to a runoff at all, just because of how involved Sid Chapman had been in the, the um, Democratic Party. I mean, I don't know if you guys know this, but like Jason Carter had endorsed him uh, pretty early in the race. And so it was surprising to me that with his ties to the party he didn't, and, and just like the advocacy he's had on education issues that he didn't um, win the first time around. But I mean, Otho has as well. He's just, uh, uh, he's been very, very active in education issues, just not as active, at least from what I could see in the Democratic Party. So I think either candidate will do well and have a lot of support um among democrats and i'm always been i've always been surprised that um the state school superintendent hasn't been a more important democrat in the you know uh slate of candidates just because of how often education issues are at the core of democrats statewide candidates uh message and mission and the only other thing i'll say is that Never forget that uh, Richard Woods hired Jeremy Spencer, the the twin brother of Jason Spencer. So, uh, well, you know, we'll get to that in a minute, though. I'm laying the marker here that I think the closest statewide ticket race is going to be Secretary of State in the fall. Um, and I think in the fall, the the biggest margin for GOP is going to be Agriculture Commissioner. Um, I think Gary Black's going to blow out Frank, whatever his name is. Fred Swan, a wacky guy. Fred Swan, not Frank Swan. Um, see, I didn't even know his name. So I think uh, Gary Black's going to blow him out of the water there. And I think the second closest may be that state school superintendent race. But um, And I think the closest runoff that we're going to see tomorrow is going to be the LG race on the Republican side. I think I agree with most of that. I think that Fred Swan wins about 95% of the total vote in the fall because he was a Peach That's Pod right. guest. He was one of our first <laughs> statewide candidates we talked to. The Peach Pod bump. And Peach Pod has an, Peach Pod has an <laughs> unimpeachable record on uh, the success of our candidates. Just don't check the actual stats. Just take my word for it. <laughs> Fake news. All right. Well, let's transition to... Uh, probably the ugliest news out of the state of Georgia today. And that is the appearance of, uh, at least for now, State Representative Jason Spencer on Sacha Baron Cohen's new show, Who is America? Um, Jason Spencer royally embarrassed both himself and the state of Georgia in what was really a a very gruesome performance in in a short clip on this show. Um, there will we'll share a link to the appearance but for those of you who don't want to watch something so gruesome uh greg's greg bluestein did the work of translating that performance into some g-rated uh description that's that hard was shared in the ajc article on this yes this is uh, this was the lord's work by greg bluestein so um i just want to share his description of this Five hours later. Since Kyle cannot read this without laughing, I'm going to read it because it's my duty as a Georgian to to do this because uh, Jason Spencer's is is my rep, my hometown rep, not my current rep though. That's thank God, Jonathan Wallace. Ahem. 
Sasha Baron Cohen gets Spencer to yell racial epithets, make offensive remarks about Chinese tourists, and pull down his pants and shimmy his naked buttocks toward purported attackers while ye- yelling, USA and America! He was told these tactics <laughs> ward off homo- homophobic militants. In another clip, after the show's credits, Spencer returns to the camera with a message to the terrorists. He then repeats a racial slur and stabs a knife into the growing area of a dummy clad in a black burqa before shoving another item into the dummy's mouth. That is a very, very G-rated version of what happened. Yeah, thank, thank you, Greg Bluestein. And really, to, to, to get back to... I mean, this is really serious stuff. It's really embarrassing. It's really offensive to the remarkable number of groups of people that Jason Spencer managed to offend in, in this really horrific clip. The thing that I just, I could not get away from this. is The reason I couldn't read it. I just, so Sasha Baron Cohen is, he has this comedic style where he puts people in situations and gets them to do crazy things. And I just can't believe that Jason Spencer didn't get halfway into this clip uh, or halfway into what he thought was an instructional video for for um, counterterrorism purposes and just be like, no, I'm not doing this. <laughs> like, I don't, I, I think, I don't know Jason Spencer personally. I, I know you're more familiar with him, Luke, because he is or was formerly your state representative. I think it says a lot about him that he got through the things that we just described and didn't, you know, or even got through part of it and didn't say there is no way in hell that I'm going to do this. Yeah. I mean, okay. Th- this is why I think is important because this is, you know, what, what Jason Spencer, yeah, you know, said that, you know, the reason why we should not be like giving him a bunch of criticism for this. And I think it's fair if we're going to ridicule him, let's at least let him have his, his, his statement on it and then completely criticize him for it is that he, at the time, had been receiving death threats because he had proposed a uh, a bill that he referred to as an anti-masking statute, but in all reality it was just an anti-Burka statute because uh, he's racist, but you know, we can get to that in a minute. So he was receiving death threats because of that, and this was around the same time that Steve Scalise got shot at the Republican congressional bas- uh, baseball game practice. And so he he claims that he was like deeply afraid for his life and that he was taken advantage of by Sasha Baron Cohen because he was not thinking straight and so he was like willing to participate. That explains what got him in the door, I think. And I think that's a fair explanation for why he was there because I, you know, Sasha Baron Cohen's team is obviously very convincing because I mean, you know, Jason Spencer is a state rep. They probably could get his personal phone number pretty easily. Uh, but they also got, like, Dick Cheney and Sarah Palin and fool, fooled them. They got Bernie Sanders. So, like, their team is obviously good at this. And, you know, this is a... Uh, Spencer is on the program for a total of about five minutes. And so, sure, they probably selectively edited some of it. And there was probably a lot of stuff that they had him do to, like, warm him up to doing these insane things. However, that being said, uh, the parts that are like the most offensive are the ones that like they very clearly did not selectively edit are the parts that like they very like he 
you know the uh the character that sasha baron Cohen is playing like prompts him to say the n-word and he does not flinch and like almost immediately goes into screaming it at the top of his lungs and even like even sasha baron Cohen, who like is has the best poker face of anyone i've ever seen does this like seems like he's just like no man that's a terrible world word don't say that uh and like came and keep it keep it going and then uh the the statement to the terrorist at the end i mean like that was that was not acting that was someone really like just going at it where he again uses the n-word and he like chops off their dicks and (laughs) like i i don't know i don't even know what to say it's it's more of this is this the saddest thing about all of this is that none of it was surprising to me because i've known jason spencer for a long time and i will say to the credit of the republican party down there and many legislators in atlanta they they spent a lot of money trying to get rid of him for for several terms because of his bizarre behavior and in his just tendency to say and do things that were inappropriate and he seems to have been an embarrassment for a long time but this this was not surprising to me and i'm you know it's interesting to me that he had already lost his primary before this happened because i feel like it would have been a much bigger problem for not only him but the republican party if if he was actually the nominee unfortunately uh he he's the representative for hd 180 there's not a democrat running in in my hometown so if he was still on the ballot he would have been unopposed yeah i mean i'll i'll be short and sweet here um i think everyone had the right idea ralston deal kegel kemp all calling on him to resign i think he should um, I think it's disgusting and embarrassing to the state party. Um, I honestly think that um, he should look at medical treatment if if he is that distraught that these folks were able to convince him that um, they were doing something that was anything but. Um, and, and to be honest with you, I, I you know it's it's kind of sad that Cohen. Um, is able to make a living what he's doing, um, to be honest with you. Yes, it's these folks that are saying this. He's not forcing them to say anything, um, but it, 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 it is disingenuous how he approaches people, um, and it's kind of shameful. Um, but Representative Spencer should resign immediately. Um, I don't know if he will. I believe I, I was formerly fr- uh, friends with him on Facebook, and I was trying to find him again to make sure that I was not speaking out of turn, but I believe um, – he has African-Americans in his family, um, and I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that he was married to a African-American woman, um, which makes all this um, very concerning. Um, I think in his statement he had said that he was pursuing marriage counseling, um, which I think is good for him and his family. Um, and I honestly think he should resign to be able to focus on his family at this point because um, a lot of what was said on that, that recording um, is is just – the worst. Um, it's one of the worst things I've ever heard. I, I haven't even watched it all. I've, I've went off of what people have told me and what Bluestein has written um, about it. Um, so he needs to resign, and hopefully we can move on from that. Yeah, I I, 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 agree, I agree that you know this is um, just a sad episode, and it it does uh, <laughs> it, it, it might as a weird consequence of his actions highlight the need for greater mental health uh, services in the state of Georgia. Uh, but I, I would push back a little bit on just what Cohen does. I mean, I think it's important that we know that, that people in power are held, held accountable. And it's a bizarre way to do it. 
but I think it's it's important that the people of Georgia understood what Jason Spencer is, and I think it's important, you know, same with Sarah Paling and Dick Cheney and Bernie Sanders. I I think it's a interact, you know, like I said, it's very bizarre, but um, most of the time from the work his you know the work that i've seen of his it is in a, it's a very opaque way of revealing people's true character in a similar way that stephen colbert's previous character was able to do um it, it's definitely a lot more crude it's not the way i would do it but i think it's not completely valueless well, and i think the other thing to add is you know, some some really savvy Democratic pundit might try to tar the entire Republican Party with with Jason Spencer's actions. I I think this is clearly absurd and beyond the pale, even for a lot of Republicans. And it was good to see uh, most of the Republican leadership in Georgia really quickly turn around and say that that this guy needs to resign. Um, but the fact that that Jason Spencer, as an elected official, as somebody who's been a member of the legislature for a while, um, would get in this situation and think that it's okay to say these things, to say such racist and bigoted and horrific things, I think is a testament to uh, the fact that um, that there is an opening for this kind of view within at least certain segments of the party. Um, and, and it's one that I, I would hope that, that serious Republicans and, and Republicans in leadership would try to stamp out and say is not welcome. In yeah. And I, I feel obligated to mention, as I mentioned earlier, his twin brother, Jeremy Spencer, who used to work for the education department and taught me evolution sometime, uh, in 2015, 2016, uh, Jeremy Spencer, Jason Spencer's twin brother got fired for posting similarly very racist stuff. And so there, I mean, there's an element in the party that needs to, you know, be worked on and revealed because it's it's uh, there's obviously more than just Jason Spencer that have have these views. Yeah, I I, I understand why why folks would think that there are more folks in the Republican Party that believe that, and they may be right. And um, if so, we need to as Republicans, we got to make sure uh, as much as we can that we call it out. We ask them to resign, and we say there's no room for that. So. Well, I think that is a, a good moment to end on. So um, keep an eye on election results. Those are going to come out today uh, if you're listening to us on Tuesday. Um, and then after that, we will know who uh, the Democrat versus the Republican is going to be in, in many of the Georgia races. Um, so with that, uh, Cody, thanks so much for, for coming back and hanging out with us. Well, thanks. I enjoyed it. And Luke, thanks as always. It, it was a pleasure. And we will uh, talk to you guys on the other side of this election. Bye, guys. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.